chatting with the culinary libertarian dan reed dan is a chef and a podcaster um, and we have known each other for several years online so this is a pretty good informal chat um i love to cook and uh so i just kind of wanted to pick his brain about food and um cooking and that sort of thing um and you know obviously we get into libertarian thought and some more practical ways that you and i can learn to uh, be more self-reliant and self-sufficient in um, the coming days. Before we get started, I want to let you know about BU Enterprises. Um, friend of the show and friend of the movement, Juliet Nail is a yoga instructor and a wellness coach, um, and she would like to welcome you back into your body. If you are a business owner and have a team that you would like to uh, offer wellness programs to, Consider going to BU Enterprises to provide your team with instruction on yoga uh, and other body movement and body awareness exercises that they can do at their desk, whether they're at home or the office. And in addition, if you are an individual who is interested in virtual yoga or if you live in the Twin Cities, uh, in-person yoga instruction, reach out to Juliet. Once again, that's buenterprises.com, and I'll be sure to leave a link in the show notes. And with that, here is my interview with Dan Reed. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Sure. Uh, so I have been, you know, I mean, we've been interacting online on Facebook and in, in various groups and stuff for quite a while. Um, but for those who, like, aren't familiar with you, why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Well, my name is Dan. I run the blog slash podcast called The Culinary Libertarian, which we can get into in a little bit. Uh, before that, really, I'm I'm a cook, and I've been I don't cook now professionally, but I spent oh geez twenty or more years in food, both in. Uh, in restaurants and then in hotels and then transferred that into uh, grocery stores and bake shops. So I, I am uh, I, I am a chef by training, not by certification. Uh, and I'm also a baker by training, not by certification. And I can also do pastries. So uh, it's a fairly rare combination that you can get somebody who can do the hot side stuff and all the baking and pastry work. So I can make you your Chateaubriand and the wedding cake to go with it. That's an unusual combination. That's impressive. That's uh, that's like <laughs> that's like chef that's like Chef John tier. Well, I was I, I grew up. I came up, as some of the Southerners like to say, in a tradition of food where if you're going to call yourself a chef, then you have to be able to do at least everything in the kitchen. Now, we wouldn't expect the chef of the kitchen to excel at pastries more than the pastry chef, whose job it is to do only that thing. But if the pastry chef is out, and they need some desserts, you better be able to make some cakes, make some pies, make something so that the restaurant has desserts to sell. So there is there is a 
this thing in me, this this old world. Uh, this guy was Czech. He was Milo Sihalko, the first certified master chef in the U.S., certified by the CIA and the American Chef Association, American Culinary Federation. Sorry, uh, he was he was just that way. There was a there was a way to do the job, and the way to do the job was a the right way, and there was a right way, uh, but also have skill in all the things, and so that's just what. That's what I grew up in, so I figured that's how this thing goes. <laughs> it, you know, years go by and things change all over the place, and so these things aren't necessarily so. But in food, so I, we, we, you and I, and others engage in politics, but we can make jokes with the words that in my food I have a very staunch conservatism for the old ways and. Yeah, and just so now, just now when you said when you said uh, there was a right way, uh, my my uh, like liberal postmodern side just bristled. I was like, wait a second, what do you mean there's a right way? Well, got, as we speak, I've got uh, a bunch of chicken legs in a crock pot, just sitting in like barbecue sauce, and then just whatever shit I found in the fridge that. Uh, was either going to go bad or whatever, and then a bunch of vegetables. So uh, there, as far as I'm concerned, there's no right way. Uh, but that also can turn out bad. Well, so it's funny you mentioned that because I, I, I had some – I made lunch for my wife, and it was just a kind of a cleaning out the fridge day, which sounds a little bit kind of like what you had. And there's nothing wrong with utilizing your stuffs, but utilizing them – to all of their best advantages versus getting less than the best out of them is what doing it right means. And uh, I'm going to get to the lunch in a second. And the explanation of this is I, I we had in Tallahassee, uh, another certified master chef, we had come upon a bunch of, uh, of gray, gray mullet. Now mullet in the South is a big deal, especially smoked, but to smoke mullet, cold smoke it, it requires some steps. You can't just put this piece of fish in a cold smoker and, and smoke it and say it's done. Well, it will be smoked. It won't be right. You'll say, gee, there's something is, <laughs> lots of things are wrong with this. And what's wrong with it was that you didn't do for the fish what it wanted done, which is, this is a very strange thing to Americans, uh, Western culture. You didn't treat the fish the right way to get the result you needed. You dishonored the fish, which is very Eastern, but there is, this is where this is where it gets kind of weird. There is a respect and a reverence for the ingredient and the procedure to obtain the right end result. So if you've ever had superior smoked salmon, you say, wow, man, I don't know what they did, but this, this is it, this is the thing. And when it's not there, you say, well, hmm, well, whatever, this is like, okay, it's fine, but it's not great. The difference between fine and great is doing it the right way. And you, if you can accept subpar results as the customer, well, then that's one thing. If you can accept subpar results as the cook, well, now that's a whole other ball game, and now I'm going to have some issues with that. If you're doing it at home, I don't care. Because what you do at home for the people you love, that's fine. That's that's not the same expectation. And anyway, so 
the, the, the philosophy of in the restaurant, following the right procedures to get the right results is, is a cook's philosophy, is a chef's philosophy. And so your chicken legs and my chicken salad, it was smoked chicken. My wife got me a smoker for Christmas and I had some leftover smoked chicken. So I diced it up and threw a bunch of stuff in it, which included cilantro and avocados. And she took it to lunch and her coworker said, this is great. I want the recipe. And she laughed. <laughs> there isn't a recipe. And it wasn't. It's just, this is, this is, I, this is mixed ingredients day for lunch. My husband just didn't want the cilantro to go slimy is all. Well, I wrap it up in paper towel. I rinse it off, shake it dry, and lay it out on my paper towels, and then roll it up so that it takes weeks for it to go slimy. That's a good tip. See, this, this is this is what the people want from you, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read the other day also that you can plant or you can put cilantro stems in water, and they will actually take root in a glass. I've so. seen that happen, but now here's where slimy comes in. The, the, your tap water may not be the best for the plant in the law in the short run it will sprout it will grow roots but then it's going to say yo where's my dirt and it's going to become displeased so it will give you a little bit extra time but i found that the slime that grows on the roots in the water in the cup on the ledge is not worth all the effort to get a day or two extra out of the cilantro when i can get weeks out of it the way i'm doing it Perfect. So roll it up in a damp paper towel after rinsing. And then into a zip top bag and then don't zip the bag, but just kind of roll it on top of itself. So there's some little teeny bit of airflow, but yeah, it lasts a long time. Great. Uh, okay. So how did the culinary libertarian come about? There was, this was probably four years ago, I was listening to a podcaster and I'm going to reveal him in a minute. And his one of his it continues to be is, uh, if you want to start a blog, use my link. So I did. This is Tom Woods. I this is really kind of stupid. I should have known better. So I figure if I'm going to use this libertarian podcaster's link to start my podcast, I probably ought to do something that's libertarian, right? Of course, no. So. What did I know? I knew food. I knew food well. I was learning about what libertarianism is. But I thought that these two things had to go together because I wouldn't get I wouldn't get the deal if it didn't have libertarian in it. Well, that's how idiotic I was. But anyway, so that's how it grew. And it started out really just being mostly baking recipes because baking on words, baking is easier to teach than cooking is easier to teach. So if I tell you, you have a cup of flour, well, from gold medal to King Arthur to something else, there will be minor differences, but because it's a cup of flour, the minor differences are nearly irrelevant and won't matter. If we're gonna talk about grilling a steak, all right. How hot's the grill? How thick is the steak? What cut is the steak? What animal is the steak? How much fat's in the steak? How many things can I not control that you're going to go and do this thing and say, this is the worst steak I've ever had? That's why teaching baking on, an, on a web page is easier to do. It's easier to teach baking in print as well because more of the factors are controllable because I know what you're going to see. 
I have no idea. When I say high heat, what does that mean to you? What does medium high heat mean? So started out that way. And as I got into liberty and libertarianism thinking more, libertarian philosophy, uh, I started seeing a way to put the culinary part of food into more of not the user end, but the supply end. So now there, I have posts about uh, how um, the blockchain, the same thing that people use for you know Bitcoin and digital currency, is used to uh, follow fish. You can use it for anything, actually, but the thing was about following fish from its capture or catch to its final destination because there's been a lot of pun intended, slippery dealing with fish going from one place to another, being uh, changing its country of origin. So now it reads it's from this place, not that place, because that place it's illegal to get fish in the U.S. It's like, well, there's some real issues. There's some real concerns and some real problems in food that are made problems because of, guess what? The government. Whose government? Pick one. Um, and then we can find, think about ways, either through blockchain technology, which is private, or how can we apply, how can we apply liberty thinking? How can we, how can we apply private property rights to this massive industry and get better results, which means more profit, yes, that's kind of a four-letter word, uh, cash, four-letter word, more profit, more efficiency, better selection, and more on-time stuff to the people who want it. Oh. So that's a real fast cover of four years. <laughs> well, and as someone who loves to cook, even though I, you know, I, I don't do it the right way, although the people who I cook for seem to love it. So that's great. Like my mom considers me a gourmet chef, which is which is always flattering. She also thinks I'm a good dancer, though. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I was I was going to do something similar um, a long, long time ago. It might have even been before Tom Woods's Bluehost thing, which he still he still owes me a shout out. I should probably ask him for that. Uh, I was going to start a food and libertarian blog and it just seems so overwhelming so i'm glad somebody did it like i i coming trying to come up with ideas i was finding like all these cato white papers and stuff that just you know i was i was young and i didn't know how to read that stuff and it was just so boring to me um but you make it work and you also you have some episodes and some posts that are just libertarian and some stuff that's just food and i love that blend it reminds me a little bit of eric peters how he can do a car review and also like a like a synopsis of some new crazy traffic legislation <laughs> all in the same place. Uh, so I'm glad that somebody cracked the code on that. Um, <clears throat> so uh, how did you how did you come to like libertarianism? I honestly the, I, I wish I knew the exact moments, but there was it's it's i the my best memory is it's sort of a piece by piece thing and some of those pieces are years and years apart um where it started to catch some momentum was a, a former employer former boss uh, at a grocery store in tallahassee um said he's libertarian and i can't say he's not and we love to fight with each other about oh you're not pure enough um 
but I'd never heard the word before. And so he sort of, his explanation was more into how he's not Republican or Democrat. And he really didn't get the whole uh, nap idea. And he, but he might know it. He just didn't say it. I, I can't say, um, but it was an introduction to the word. So I started looking into this word, into this idea. What does this mean? And in no particular order, uh, found Milton Friedman on Phil Donahue giving the greed talk. I thought, wow, look at this little guy. This is amazing. Now, there are sects of libertarians who don't think he's right and pure, but Milton did a lot to make a lot of people aware of this idea that, you know, there's something other than R&D. There's this other way to think about things. And he delivered it with a panache that really made the deal. The same words from somebody else may not have worked as well. So more Phil Donahue and Milton Friedman, which led in, in no particular order to uh, Glenn Beck, which somehow led to Tom Woods. And then, then it was, it was, then I was down the rabbit hole. And then, and then, so you hear Woods, then you get Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe and, and these like, holy crap, these things. I can't read these books. Are, I'm not that smart. I need something easier to get to, but there's a lot of stuff that's easier to get to. Uh, I found some people who, I learned I probably shouldn't have found, and I'm not going to mention their names, but we'll, we'll get that. Uh, well, you, you get so like anything else, people don't tell you what to think. Here's here's what's out there. You go read it, and you come to your own conclusions. And so that's so the into the liberty part started with this this fellow at the grocery store and Phil Donahue and Milton Friedman, and then. I was, I was chatting, actually, so you mentioned The Great Reset. I talked to Michael Ruttenwald a couple of episodes ago, and we chat on online and was telling him that I'm feeling, feeling a little overwhelmed with this whole Great Reset thing, and it feels like there's almost no point to start discussing anything because it's just going to come undone anyway. And so I said, how do you, how do you, how do you cope with this? Cause he is, he's just ears deep in this stuff. And so he gave me some of his ideas and I said, I like reading some stuff. And he said, well, I would, for him, he avoids the, he avoids certain things. And I feel that I need to back up my knowledge in Liberty with things like Mises and Rothbard, but I, I read parts of it. I read it here and there, and I've got them on digital books. But the things that really interest me are things like Chris Voss's negotiation. Because that's stuff that I can do today. It's not current events. It's not politics. It's how can you become a better person and make the people around you better people? And so there's a whole slew of other, I hate the term self-help, but I don't mind help. Um, so these are the things that I read, and I forgot what the question was, but. Uh, well, you did you did bring up the Great Reset. So what um, what do you know about it? As for, and particularly, uh, I know that the one of the bits of their agenda is to rely more on plant-based foods, less on meat, and like I've heard like insect proteins and stuff like that. Are you are you familiar or up to speed on 
kind of what their uh, agenda a, is? A little bit. Well, so the Great Reset is that they, 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 which is the World Economic Forum slash Davos starting today, uh, have this master plan to remake remake yeah that might be right if i was gonna say reshape but i may not correct myself remake the world's economy in their vision based on a couple of premises that they think are correct they think one that climate change is a fact they think that capitalism has failed that's a fact and based on those main two things, they want to reshape the economy in a way that they think is going to work best. And what they think works best is fundamentally a top-down central planner determining on all levels from food and, and shopping and military and electronic and technological I mean, there's nothing that's left untouched in the Great Reset. They're going to manage it all because they know better than 330 million Americans and, what, 8 billion Americans on the planet. So what could go wrong? Inside the Great Reset is just scores of mini-resets, including the food transformation, which is what you were talking about. The the Green New Deal is something that they're very for, uh, and that means eliminating or at least heavily reducing reliance on animal meat, four-legged animal meat. Uh, it gets that is between the grass that it eats and the farts that it makes, contributing to you know carbon and global warming. So they say. So we get rid of that and we'll focus on plant-based protein. And this is where the congestion comes into place. Bill Gates is now the largest farmland owner, at least in the United States. Yeah, and having – well, I don't know anything. I'm speculating. But he was a shareholder in both of the major plant-based protein burger slash quote unquote, air quotes, meat companies. Uh, I think he's out of them both now, but I think that this is probably this long-term plan to grow plant-based, whatever, whatever the plants are, he's got the land to do it. Um, anybody who's been paying attention knows that Gates has not been shy about being involved in the Great Reset and getting vaccines for everybody and locked down for two more years or whatever idiocy he said. Um, so the Great Reset in the food transformation is getting rid of actual living animals, although they seem very much in favor of aquaculture, which is an episode I just released today. But there's, there's some discord because on one of the pages on the WEF's page is this terrifying headline that up to 60% of the Earth's marine animals can go extinct if the temperature climbs to 5C. Well, so 4.9 is fine, but 5 is the, is the threshold, which, you know, Bob Murphy has said that, uh, and he works for, uh, your, <clears throat> your uh, audience probably knows who Murphy is. He's a libertarian economist. 
who works for I forgot the the agency that does a lot of Homeland Institute, I think. That could be. It does a lot of fact checking on global warming claims, and uh, he's the one that I watched a YouTube video where he's saying, "Okay, the they say the threshold is two. What happens if it's two point one? Does it just explode?" So there's no explanation to what happens if those thresholds aren't met but suddenly 5c now is a problem and if that happens 60 percent of the world's fish are going to just die well that's scary it's supposed to be scary they want you to be terrified they want you to give them their money and their allegiance and just succumb to whatever the drones say um so they they like the idea of aquaculture but who knows what it is they're going to be growing to feed us we're thinking, I'm thinking, you know, thinned fish. It could be some giant slabs of some single-celled algae, and this is your protein. <laughs> Who knows? So, Can you kind of describe what aqu aquaculture is for the audience? Uh, I've, yes. I think I've gone over it with uh, some of my agorist guests, but uh, just to kind of recenter on it. Well, aquaculture is not limited to fish, but that's the thing that's easiest to see. But it is... It is a controlled environment of farming animals in the water. So animals could be single-celled organisms like seaweed. I'm not actually seaweed's probably multi-celled, but I'm not a biologist. Um, so there is a place in uh, near Fort Pierce, Florida, called the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. Uh, it's part of Florida Atlantic and University. I think that's it. Uh, really impressive place, and they do a lot of they do a lot of research in aquaculture. And you can go and take a tour and they'll show you their seed clams. Uh, they have redfish, cobia, pompano. They did, uh, they, they started this thing with tilapia where the tilapia is in the water and you can grow uh, a produce crop. And their example was basil. So that you're getting both land crops and fish crops. Now, Personally, even though this is a really cool idea, I think tilapia is crab fish and you're better off not eating it, but that's my opinion. But that's what aquaculture is. So about 50% of the fish you find in the store or the grocery's case or in the restaurant is from an aquaculture situation. Uh, salmon, shrimp, cod, cobia, turbo, uh, some of it's for feeding of the fish, um, oysters, mussels, clams, scallops. Scallops is like, wow, this is really interesting. I didn't know scallops, but yeah, scallops too. Uh, but then, so that's the fun side. Hey, we can grow fish. The bad side is, damn, we have this biological thing with, which can have all kinds of problems. And now with these kinds of problems to biological entities, like we get sick, Fish can get sick. Let's give it some drugs. How much? Well, now that's the problem. So that's a separate, that's more than you ask, but quickly, um, different countries give different quantities of drugs to the fish, which can be overcrowded in their space. So they aren't swimming to their full potential. So the muscle meat isn't as strong as a wild fish would be. Um, being exposed to all of those chemicals can uh, cause the level of toxicity to increase. So the final consumer, us, can have some issues. The color that they give the farm salmon, if wild salmon go eat shrimp and other stuff, and that's how they get that. That's how they get their natural red color. Farmed fish, 
are fed that color. And in some cases, people have had some very severe allergic reactions to that chemistry in the fish that they eat. So it's not without its problems, but as an idea, it's a good one to solve a food problem for the next um, the uh, uh, World Economic Forum has a decade of action, which is now a 10 year plan to really push this great reset and all the mini resets forward, uh, which um, depending on how cynical you are could include vaccinations and microchips and uh, digital currency. Oh, where have we heard that before? So all of the th all these great big ideas that are coming down the pike, this new hmm, person appointed from Pennsylvania now in some in the Biden administration. I don't know if this is true. I don't want to spread fake news. I'll qualify that I can't verify it. But there was a suggestion that this person wants to uh, approve loans or services for people who have social credit scores that they approve of. Well, <laughs> all this stuff is part of the big plan. So from the libertarian standpoint, from a liberty standpoint, from a sovereignty standpoint, probably an agorist standpoint, how do we stand against that? Well, that's another show, but there are ways, but it ain't easy. It sounds like uh, it sounds like trying to remake the world in the image of China. Well, it's not trying, it's planning. They they are eager to do that. And and if you listen to Rechtenwall, who has got lots of interviews about this, lots of writing about this, that's exactly the model. China is exactly the plan they have. Not to make not to make the world China exactly, but following their roadmap, that's what they plan to do. It's pretty scary. Um, yes, it is. So, uh, what do you what do you suggest? What can we do to remedy it? I, I I don't think that I don't think that you and I and our little movement can uh, can resist the the global hegemony, but. Uh, can you and I as individuals do anything to um, just make our own lives a little more resistant? I think the first thing we can do is, it's in the middle of winter here, but where you can either buy seeds or start seeds, learn, learn basic outdoor skills, learn how to plant a garden, learn how to raise chickens, more importantly, learn how to butcher a chicken. Uh, no one would reasonably expect you to dispatch a cow, but knowing how to take care of a chicken or a rabbit, that's probably a useful skill. Learning how to grow food, identify dandelions aren't weeds, dandelions are food. There's, they make great salads and there's more than one kind of dandelion. There's also salsify that grows in your front yard, you just didn't know that it was salsify. The roots are good. So learning how to identify what you can eat in your front yard, how you can forage for what's edible, and more importantly, learning what's not edible. Um, those are skills you can do. Uh, a guy who I think you've talked to, or at least you've talked to Pete, uh, who has an association to John Bush and the Freedom Cells. Even without that actual affiliation, Find people in your neighborhood, find people in your community, in your town who have uh, similar feelings about not being, not being bored and have skills you don't. 
Can somebody sew? Is somebody a carpenter? Somebody a woodworker? Can somebody cook? <laughs> Find these people, build your networks, and in, when summer comes, you grow tomatoes and they grow eggplants and that other person grows beans or whatever. There's ways to cooperate. This It sounds like Little House on the Prairie, but really, I, I think there's a lot of value even even with you pish posh and tee hee, you know, Michael Landon, ha ha. There's there's value to be gained from recognizing that that is really what a community should be. Not, I mean, you and I are talking, and you're two hours away as the as the crow flies, and this is really really cool stuff. Without this, you and I wouldn't know each other. So when this goes away, when there are rolling blackouts, who are you going to rely on? Go find those people. Make friends with them. That sounds uh, that sounds really doable. I mean, you know, most cities even will allow you to keep chickens and almost anybody can grow something. Um, I, for myself, uh, I mean, I'm here in Minnesota, so it, our growing season is very small. So I, for Christmas, received some indoor gardening equipment, grow lights, some shelves. I'm growing a whole bunch of different vegetables, like in tomato cans right now. Uh, but, uh, and then I, I got a canning kit so I can learn how to preserve food as well. That is, yes, I'm, I should have mentioned that canning is so critical. So, and yeah, either canning in tin or canning in glass or putting up somehow, learn learn how to freeze. There's ways to you know, put it in a bag in the freezer. Well, you, and there's, there's some things to know. Um, the book, Stocking Up, is a spectacular resource for all that information. Cool, I'll make sure to... Um to link to that in the show notes. Oh, and also we mentioned Bob Murphy earlier, and I think I said he worked for the Homeland Institute. Uh, he actually works for the Institute for Energy Research, IER. Um, so I just want okay. to clarify that. Uh, although he hasn't written anything for them since last February. So uh, maybe he's taking a hiatus or something. Um, all right, let's uh, let's switch into, let's switch into something more fun, unless you've got, unless you've got any more uh, Debbie Downer stuff. Oh no, not, not right now, but I can find more if you want it. <laughs> yeah. There's there's plenty to go around. Oh, and then just for, for the audience's um reference, we're recording this on January twenty-fifth. So it's not gonna come out for another couple weeks probably. Um so hopefully by then we will have learned all about the Great Reset and everyone will have attended John Bush's and uh, Derek Bros's event, The Greater Reset, um, or watch the replay, which uh, I will make sure to link to uh, because I think they're gonna they're just going to post the videos. So if you haven't listened and watched, then make sure to do that. Um, so Dan, yes. important questions. Uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes, it is. Great. Me too. Okay. Uh, so why is a hot dog a sandwich? It meets the basic criteria, which is a bread spread filling in a garnish. Great. Yeah. It's a, I, I came up with a sandwich alignment chart and hot dog <laughs> is right there. It's a true neutral as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's it's got the standard bread and maybe like a neutral filling. So um, this was a this was something <laughs> this was controversial on Twitter the other day, uh, and I didn't expect it to be salted or unsalted butter. Oh, unsalted, absolutely. Yeah, I I don't like I I just posted on Twitter 
Um, does anybody actually buy salted butter? And everyone said that that's all they buy. And I don't, I just don't get it. I mean, like I could, I, maybe if the only thing you use butter for is toast and you don't want to like sprinkle but, salt on your toast, but then you don't taste the butter. So, um, okay. And that that's coming from someone who's a baker and obviously you wouldn't use salted butter for baking, uh, but also as a cook who might use butter to, I don't know, lube up a pan or something like that. Um, what is the best oil for pan frying? Well, now this is an interesting question because when the, the word oil connotes a visual, it is liquid at room temperature. Mm -hmm. When we use the word fat to talk about things that are, that are solid at room temperature. So butter, oh. <clears throat> butter is a fat. And coconut oil to fat. Well, it depends how hot your room is. It's either yeah. a fat or an oil because it has a pretty low melting point as far as being in the jar. So I, for me, the only oil I use is actually virgin olive oil. And I know that somebody's going to be here listening to this and they go, <gasps> you do what? Yes, I sauté in extra virgin olive oil, even deep frying it. And I know someone's going to have a heart attack. There's apoplexics everywhere. That's fine. Um, and my argument for doing that is the Cacciofri alla Judea, which is little artichoke hearts fried in extra virgin olive oil in the, Ro in the Jewish section of Rome. They're amazing. I, I brought Rome to me and fried them in a restaurant, but oh, man, spectacular. So extra virgin olive oil is the only oil, only liquid at room temperature oil I use with the single exception of pinned oil in my deep fryer. Everything else is fats. Uh, so I save my bacon fat. I save my beef fat. I render my chicken fat. Uh, then I have lots and lots of butter. The answer to your question is it depends on the thing that I'm doing. If I'm going to make a stir fry, I use coconut oil because I like the one has a really high heat. And I like the flavor uh, of the coconut oil with all the stir fried stuff. Um, if I'm pan frying... Uh, from uh, like chicken legs or something uh, on the stovetop, which I rarely do because I have the fryer, uh, then it's probably either peanut oil or you know, that would be it because I don't want to have all that extra chicken flavor lard. So it would be peanut oil. Um, really, the, the flavor is the oil of choice, which means what I'm saying is the fat of choice is the thing that complements what it is you're making. Uh, I avoid canola oil and safflower oil and sunflower oil and corn oil. Anything that came from a seed or a nut uh, isn't something you want to be eating. Yeah, I've heard that. Okay, so what about pancakes versus waffles? Uh, that's comparing oranges and chestnuts. They both grow on trees, but they're not the same thing. So pancakes are fundamentally a muffin. Waffles is, it's kind of a muffin, but then you do something else to it. And something else is, and this isn't true in all waffle recipes, but for the better ones it is, you make this base, you let the base sit for a few minutes so that the flour hydrates properly, and then you add in egg whites, an aerator. Uh, those boxes you see in the grocery store, pancake and waffle batter. No, it's not. 
It's it's just it's not. And don't buy it. They're so expensive. Don't buy it. You can make your own for you have all the ingredients anyway. So make your own. It's going to taste better and you'll be happier for it. So pancakes or muffins, just not in the pan. And waffles are uh, aerated in a different way so that you get a better fluff and then all those lovely little nooks and crannies of fabulous caramelization. My grandmother used club soda in her waffles instead of water to make it even bubblier. That is a fabulous idea. Yeah, it is, it's really good. The best waffles you'll ever taste. Um, why? So why are pancakes technically a muffin? What is that? Like what, what makes a muffin a muffin? That's an excellent question. And I'm actually re- working on the second edition of my muffins cookbook and getting into some um, some muffin history. If you, and now today we say there is a there's a muffin procedure. And, and if you're going to do making biscuits, there's a biscuit procedure. There is a basic way to mix the thing. To get the cheat, the, there's the right way to get the desired result. And so the muffin procedure is you add all of the dry ingredients together. And what's interesting in the muffin method is that sugar is a wet ingredient because it's hydroscopic, it absorbs the water. So we're going to add that with um, the milk or the buttermilk, whatever the liquid you're using. Uh, and the egg and the fat and the sugar all go together. All the dry goes together. And if you have a garnish, that's at the end. And you put the dry on top of the wet, fold it together most of the way and not more than 10 times, folding very deliberately. Add your garnish, let it rest a minute or two, scoop, bake, and then enjoy. That's the muffin method. And Pancakes are mixed the same way. The, and you don't and you don't stir it more than ten times or so because that will produce too much gluten. Right. So here's where it gets kind of interesting. In in regular pancakes, if you're using a gluten flour, even an all-purpose flour has gluten in it because wheat has gluten in it. You can't get around that. So the more, and this is this is the the line is just amazing. Uh, I don't do more than 10, and I have a really wide rubber spatula for the purpose of getting the most surface area on the spatula, so I'm folding as much as possible each turn. And it's okay if it's a little lumpy, because you're going to let that batter rest for a minute or two, and in the process of scooping with your disher, you're going to kind of mix a little bit more. How you know you've overmixed your gluten muffin is two ways. The first is going to be tough. You're saying, dude, it's a freaking muffin. It's not tough. Well, you can, you can, it has a toothsomeness to it that a properly mixed one doesn't. Then you need to put them side by side and say, okay, this isn't like chewing, you know, a shoe leather, but there's a toughness here. But the other visual clue is the air bubbles, instead of being multi-sized, but mostly round, uh, you'll have what's called tunneling, which looks like big, well, you know, it's relative to the muffin, long, tall holes going up and down in the muffin. That's tunneling. That means overmixed. So the leavening has to work harder to push its way through. And so you overmix muffins don't rise as much. They're tougher, and you have the tunneling inside. Now, they're not poison. You're not going to die if you eat them. But from a right way standpoint, there is well mixed, then there's over mixed. Now, if you're making them at home, and this isn't this isn't a reason to hang your head. Um, the difference between cooking at home, 
for the people who you love and probably love you. And the difference is cooking at a restaurant where people are paying for an expectation of superior. Well, that's just not the same thing. If you're doing a painting because you're following a Bob Ross video when you want happy little trees, man, if you're doing painting and you're enjoying that, well, nobody really else, who cares what other people think? If you're having a good time and you're satisfied with the work you've made, nobody else has an opinion. If you're going to a restaurant and you're doing that and someone buys it and says, this is the worst I've ever had, I'm not paying for this, it's a different expectation. It's a different measurement. It's not the same. Perfect. So that's muffins. Um, burgers, smashed or thick? I think I like them smashed a little bit more because they don't. I, I don't want to be. I don't like the meatball in the bun. I'd rather have a little bit more uniformity in a wider, thinner burger than a. Than if I want a meatball, I'm gonna have a meatball. Yeah, I recently switched from smash or from thick, and I, I was actually, you know, doing the sous vide thing, and you know, all, just trying to make the the absolute perfect burger. Uh, they turned out tough and not very tasty. And you know, I'm using grocery store ground beef that has set, sat in the freezer forever. Um, so I switched from thick to smashed, and everyone who's tried them loves them, and uh, and. So, like they, I've been told I could sell them, like I could serve them in a restaurant. So uh, I'm definitely a smash burger, not so, like the, not the restaurant smash burger, but a smashed burger partisan. And I think it was Kenji Lopez who turned me on to it. So let me ask for a clarification on the smash part. You mean you're putting this ball of burger meat on the griddle and then pushing it down? Yep. I use a metal spatula okay. and, a, and a French rolling pin to really, really smash it down with the spatula. All right, because I just I patty them on the counter. Uh, I, I when I when I go grocery shopping, I get all of the produce bags I can get, and every single thing gets its own bag because then they have ulterior uses here. So they're either picking up yucky stuff, or if you cut them at the seams, now you have this big piece of plastic that you can put down on the counter. If you're going to grind meat, I grind my own burger, and then I use the same plastic to push the patties really nice and thin. Perfect. Uh, all right. So what is an ingredient that seems like fancy to the average person, but you think more people should use it? <laughs> White truffles. I'm kidding. I'm not really kidding. <laughs> I'm looking at Florida. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I don't really, I, I've discovered that with all of the cooking I've done, I may not understand what average people think is weird anymore see fennel and parsnips to me is just sort of standard stuff mm -hmm. and I, as i see some of the people in the question look at that and they, their eyes get big and they wonder what the hell do you do with that um i think produce is really the problem of the place to go because it's the easiest to incorporate in a lot of things uh fennel Fennel, and fennel is fun because it's good, raw, or cooked. Um, and if you want to try it, the stores notoriously mislabel it. It's not the store's fault. It's the grower's fault. Mislabel it anise. It's not anise. Anise is a tree. Uh, but it's this green thing. It looks kind of like this big bulb, but celery-ish because it's got the same sort of strands. Uh, if you smell it, it smells like licorice. The outside part is pretty tough, so it's good for stews, soups, stocks. The inside part, when you cut it into quarters, 
and you'll see this really pretty, really light green, very delicate. The flavor is very, very mild. It has a very light crunch to it, and it's awesome just by itself. Uh, thinly cut with a salad with some oranges is a classic presentation, but it can be, it's so versatile in so many things and so many cultures, anything Mediterranean, pretty much anything French or anything Italian, which is sort of the same thing, but French, you get up in, you know, Alsace, which is far from the Mediterranean, but they would use it with apples. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think that that would be it. Fennel. Fennel. Great. Fen and fennel complements pork really well too. Yes, it does. Yeah. My, uh, my great grandfather was an Italian busher and oh, nice. Yeah. So we've kind of kept his sausage recipe in the family <laughs> and we really overdo it on the fennel seed, but it's so good. I don't think that's possible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. Um, so I have a habit of over seasoning and I think I'm just overcompensating for, um, not wanting bland food, especially living in the Midwest, like food just turns out bland anyway. But <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Michigan here, I'm familiar. Oh yeah, wow. Um, so what? How do you how do you avoid over seasoning? And what if something turns out too salty? Is there a way to mitigate that? You'll have your listeners will be shouting at the radio or the computer screen saying, "Yeah, absolutely." Uh, you'll. I, I say there is not. Uh, you'll read, and I've seen, I still know cooks who say, put a potato in it. Well, you might draw the salt out, but the problem with potato is it also draws out the liquid and it changes the fundamental nature of the thing you're trying to fix. Um, the only thing really to do to fix too much salt is make more of the thing and don't salt it. There you go. There is no other trick to eliminate salt. Now, um, if you are concerned about sodium and I'm, I'm not an MD, I'm, but I'm, I don't worry about sodium because I think we've been told wrong about sodium. Gee, imagine that the government told us something that wasn't true. Um, there are lots of ways to enhance flavor without adding sodium. Uh, one of the ways is learn the right way to cook. Um, what that means is uh, develop flavors in the pan. And what the hell did you just say? Caramelize the food. Um, caramel flavor, that color that you get on the chicken legs or on your carrots or celery or onions or fennel or parsnips, all of that color turns into flavor once you add liquid to the pan. And that's how you build a, you can throw everything in a pot, add some water and boil it and be done. You can eat it. It will not be memorable for its greatness. Uh, take some more time and develop the flavors. And then you say, wow, all right. So this is, you get the, you get the first taste, then you get some more. And then a minute later, something else shows. I said, wow, this is, this is how you cook the right way to get flavor. You should name this episode, the right episode, um, without adding sodium. Herbs, lots of herbs can, can also help bring flavor out. Uh, now, acids different kinds of vinegars, different kinds of uh, citrus. So lime and guacamole is fantastic. Lemon's really good in um, Middle Eastern dishes, some of the Mediterranean area dishes, even, even cooking it, you're going to get some nice flavor of the lemon, but the acid opens flavors up. Uh, lemon, acid, vinegar, all in this just scores of vinegars to use. Uh, avoid 
the stuff you use for Easter eggs, don't get the white distilled vinegar, except for Easter eggs or cleaning your coffee pot. Uh, all of that acid works like sodium does in the way of opening up flavors, but it's not sodium. And by the way, you you do need it, despite what they, you think you know. Your body requires sodium so that the brain works. I like using white vinegar for pickling. Is there a better vinegar to use for that? Oh, I think for pickling, that's probably fine. I, depending on the thing you're pickling, depends on how bold you want that flavor to go. Uh, apple cider vinegar, you can either get the really expensive stuff with the mother in it, or you can get the Heinz version, which is as clear as consomme, um, but isn't quite as bad as the um, white distilled vinegar. All right, cool. Oh, you know what else? Try rice wine vinegar. That would be really good. Yeah, I usually put a couple of dashes of that in just to just to kind of uh, enhance it a little bit. <clears throat> um, all right, great. Is there anything else? Uh, is there anything else you'd like to cover? You're asking me if there's anything else I want to talk about food. Gee, how much time you got? <laughs> about no, I'm just kidding. Let's yeah, let, however long you want, man. Well. I'm going to, since you've opened the door, I'm going to take the moment to shill for my book, Cooking for Comfort, which, Absolutely. by the way, in, so a, a recipe, a cookbook is really just a, a list of ingredients that anybody can give you a list of ingredients. And the thing that makes or breaks the recipe is the procedure. The thing that I'm proud of about my, my cookbook is the procedure tells you more than just do something for two minutes. Because the author has no way of knowing what's going on in your kitchen. It's like that steak I was telling you. I don't know anything about the steak you bought. Mm -hmm. I know about the steak I used when I made the recipe. So I don't know what's going on in your kitchen. But I can tell you that when you do this thing, when you start to smell the aromas, that's your, that's your clue. Eh, something's got to happen. And so my procedures walk you through how to do the things at a temperature on the stove you're comfortable with. So you build skills, which is really the thing about cooking. Once you have some of the basics down, how do you caramelize the veg? Do you do them in a particular order? How do I get the most flavor out of this? When do I add dry spices? Once you get these basics, now you can do anything. You can really step out of, you can build your comfort zone and then step out of that comfort zone and start really cooking. And that's that's where I think the success comes. So I don't really – I want you to make the best food you can, but I don't care how you do it. And what's the name of your book? Cooking for Comfort, One Pot Meals You Can Make. Great. And here it is on Amazon and uh, Kindle Unlimited if, uh, if you guys are – you guys, I'm referring to the audience. If you're a member of Kim, <laughs> subscriber of Kindle Unlimited like I am, then you can get it there. Otherwise, you know, it's a cookbook, so you probably want to actually have the physical copy, and it is inexpensive and will definitely support uh, a great libertarian cook, chef, baker, etc. Um, where else can people find you online if they want to follow your work? Uh, the main place is culinarylibertarian.com. And you can find all the podcasts are there, all the recipes are there. Just everything I do is is there somehow. Cool. Thanks a lot, Dan, for joining me today. And I will make sure to link to all of your stuff in the notes. And again, I definitely recommend people buy your book because it looks fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Talk to you later. All right. All right. Thanks again to Dan for joining me today. Thank you for listening. Be sure to hit the like button, the subscribe button, 
um, visit me on Substack where uh, you can subscribe to this show. On Substack, there is a free option, and then also you can subscribe for premium content once that starts coming out. Um, or if you just appreciate the work that I do and would like to support me financially, feel free to sign up for that paid option. Either way, I do appreciate your support. I appreciate your subscription. I appreciate your ratings in iTunes. And I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. Until then, live free.